0: Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Society for Armenian Studies podcast series. My name is Asia Darbinian, and I'm currently a visiting scholar at the Stressler Center for Holocaust and Genocide Studies at Clark University. I have a pleasure today of speaking with Professor Joachim Sevelsberg. Dr. Sevelsberg is a professor of sociology and law, and Arsham and Charlotte Onesian chair, at University of Minnesota. Dr. Salzberg studied sociology, economics, and public policy at the University of Cologne, or and then continued in the doctoral program of the University of Touheir. He specialized in the sociology of law and criminology and worked on various issues such as white collar crime legislation, sentencing guidelines, comparative punishment rates, and the sociology of criminology. Professor Zabelsberg held a series of positions, including postdoctoral fellowships at John Hopkins and Harvard Universities and employment at the University of Bremen and at the Criminological Research Institute of Lower Saxony in Hanover. He has authored a number of books, among them American Memories, Atrocities, and the Law, together with Ryan King, published by Russell Sage Foundation in 2011, and Representing Mass Violence, Conflicting Responses to Human Rights Violations in Darfur, published by the University of California Press in 2015. Today, we are here to discuss Professor Sevelsberg's new book, Knowing About Genocide, Armenian Suffering and Epistemic Struggles, published by the University of California Press in 2021. Hello, Professor, and welcome.
1: Hello, Asya. It's a great pleasure to be with you. Thank you for having me.
0: Absolutely. It's a pleasure is all mine. So why don't we start with the author, author of this volume? Professor, what brought you to this subject? Why study sociology of genocide knowledge?
1: I was born in 1951 in Germany, six years after the end of the Holocaust. I grew up in a country in which the genocide was thoroughly silenced. We learned, me and my peers in the 1960s, about the horrors that the generation of our parents and partly grandparents had committed. And of course, it came as a great shock and it hung as a dark cloud over our minds for a long time, forever it will. Uh, so, the, the question of uh, knowing about genocide is something that has been with me for my entire life since coming of age. I then became a sociologist. I worked in the areas of criminology, sociology of law, later turned toward a human rights focus And then uh, moved to the United States in 1989, from Hanover, Germany, to the University of Minnesota. And something remarkable happened during my first decade here in America, and this were were the events in Yugoslavia during the wars. This was the genocide in Rwanda. This was the first time that the international community established tribunals again to prosecute the perpetrators. And I decided at that time that I should turn my sociological attention and expertise to those issues that had accompanied me for many decades as a private person and as a citizen. So I introduced a course at the University of Minnesota, upper division undergraduate course entitled Crime and Human Rights, and I wrote a book related to this course for undergraduate students, Crime and Human Rights, Criminology of Genocide and Atrocities. Then I wrote, as you cited this a moment ago kindly, 2011, American Memories, Atrocities and the Law. It's something that was partly inspired by very famous quotations by President Roosevelt and uh, Justice Jackson, the American Chief Prosecutor at Nuremberg. And they said something like, we need to document the incredible incredible things that were done with witnesses under oath and all the written documents so posterity can never doubt. So they wrote, um, if you want knowledge construction or collective memory construction function into criminal tri- tribunal proceedings. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that inspired me. And I addressed this in American memories together with my former advisee, Ryan King, And then I wrote in 2015 on an African case, the mass violence in the Darfur region of Sudan and how different social fields in in the international community, the humanitarian field versus the human rights field versus the field of diplomacy responded to that violence and made sense of it, interpreted it. And then eventually uh, I came to address the history of the Armenian people. I was awarded the Asham and Charlotte Onesian chair. And at the time, I there was a commitment to work on issues of human rights and mass violence. But it didn't have to be on the Armenian case. But I decided, since the proceeds already came from an Armenian donor whose parents had escaped the genocide and who himself had grown up in Baghdad, uh, that may. I should direct my attention to the Armenian uh, history, and so I worked for five, six years, did many small projects with many students, and this book came about knowing about genocide, Armenian suffering, and epistemic struggles, or struggles over knowledge in simple terms.
0: Right. Well, wow. Thank you for sharing this story. Fascinating one. Step by step, coming to Armenian Genocide and uh, knowledge of genocide. Uh, The next question actually is about the cover of your book. Um, I know that there is quite an interesting story behind it. So um, where is this image from? Would you share that story? How did you obtain it and why this one?
1: Yes, thank you very much for an excellent question. We should always start at the beginning. (laughs) The cover of a book is indeed its beginning. Well, the uh, cover of the book is a photograph from the town of Surles. It's the top of a staircase that was built of Armenian gravestones. And so we might ask, why would a staircase be built of gravestones? That sounds like a sacrilege. And, uh, And it is. It's in the town of Surles, which is south of Istanbul, near the city of Bursa. And uh, the history of the staircase, of course, dates back to 1915 when the Armenians of Surles were displaced, were sent on that hor- horrific track toward the Syrian desert. But fortunately for some families from Surles, they traveled through uh, Konya, and the governor of Konya, Jemal Bey, uh, um, had pity with many of the Armenians, and at least some families were saved from from deportation. They were able to survive. And at the end of World World War I, they returned to Surles in 1918. But just for a short period of time, they were driven out again in 1922 to be replaced by ethnic Turks, who themselves had suffered a terrible fate. They were driven from their homes as a consequence of the Balkan Wars just preceding World War One. Uh, they were resettled to the region of Thessaloniki, today in Greece, of course. And then in 1923, they were moved from there again and were settled in Sølis, in the places that the Armenians had were forced to free up. Uh, so it's a complicated history. It's part of the great powers agreeing on large population swaps and the populations having To endure those. The picture is taken from a film that was made by a good friend of mine, the French Armenian film director Serge Avidikian. The French title is Nous avons bu la même eau, we drink the same same water. Uh, And it's it's a documentary of Serge Avidikian visiting the home of his grandparents uh, in order to explore the local memory. What do local Turks know about the history? of this town, what do they know about the past of of the Armenians who used to live there? And during this visit, this was in the 1980s, he he discovered this staircase. He later did follow-ups of this documentary, and the staircase was gone. And eventually, the gravestones had disappeared, and nobody knows anymore where they are today. But that's the story of this cover picture. It's not just decorative. It tells a big, big and important story.
0: Quite meaningful choice, of course. Um, Well, now that we have covered the cover of the book, um, uh, why don't we speak about the structure of it? Uh, Maybe just have like a brief overview of this volume.
1: Yes. Yes, let me give a brief overview and we can maybe go into details uh, a little later. Uh, The book begins with an introduction as books do and which provides the reader with an overview and then it consists of three big parts. The first part is entitled Interaction and Micropolitics of Genocide Knowledge. It deals with how in everyday interactions conversations we remember, we acknowledge, we silence, we deny. Uh, It deals with how people engage in thought processes and write down their memories in memoirs uh, or in diaries and then we move to chap- to part 2 which is entitled sedimentation carrier groups and knowledge entrepreneurs and here i acknowledge that not all people who participate in the uh, establishment of knowledge about the past are equal there are so called knowledge entrepreneurs people with privileged access to channels of communication. States, of course, and their representatives are in a very privileged position. Sometimes intellectuals can be too. Uh, And I then try to show for the Armenian people as well as for the Turkish people how these repertoires of knowledge settle, how they become the property of collectivities, how they become self-understood matter of course, assumptions about history and the world. And then I move to part three, which is entitled rituals, epistemic power and conflict over genocide knowledge. And here I deal with the situation when we have two collectivities that hold radically opposite views of the past. How do they act? And they act number one by engaging in rituals that reaffirm their sense of community, strengthen the community, reaffirm the knowledge held by that community, or they engage in conflictual processes. They attack the other side in legal proceedings or in political processes, and that's what I explore in uh, two of the chapters in this uh, part three of the book. So that's an overview.
0: Thank you. Um, Yes. So before we go into um, discussion of uh, how this knowledge is generated, constructed, how this conflicting knowledges emerge. um, Help us understand how sociology explains what knowledge is, how different is sociological knowledge from certified or historic knowledge.
1: Yes, this is a very good question. It's in a way very simple, but it's also a question that to explain is not easy at all. As in the sociology of knowledge, we are not, as you say, interested in scholarly or certified knowledge or not alone or not primarily. Uh, Even if, of course, scholarly knowledge is important for me personally, as a scholar, it's, it's extremely important. It's privileged knowledge for me as a person. Um, and it sometimes can be quite influential beyond the world of scholarship. Uh, but knowledge, in the sense in which I treat it, is simply, and this is a famous definition by Peter Berger and Thomas Luckman from a book called The Social Construction of Reality, the certainty that phenomena are real and that they possess specific characteristics there was an Alfred Schutz who wrote about matter of course assumptions. There was a Max Scheler who wrote about a, about a relative natural worldview. Uh, and the point is that we live with assumptions about reality that we think of as our knowledge of the world. And we don't question them every step along the way. We could not live if we questioned every assumption on which we base our actions and our lives. Right. And of course, not all agree on knowledge. There are agreements and disagreements that are patterned by social structure. There are conflicting repertoires of knowledge. And that's relatively easy to get across nowadays as we live in a very polarized world where different groups, also of the American public, but not just the American public, hold quite radically opposite views of social reality. So knowledge is and its something we have to take really seriously. We want it's, it's a fact of life, how people think about the world, what they think their knowledge is, no matter if it's correct or incorrect, no matter if it's in line with scholarly insights or not. It is a fact of life and we need to deal with it.
0: Absolutely. And as a historian, it was uh, very interesting for me to learn um, these, Uh, detailed explanations uh, in your book about how um, sociological knowledge is different from the knowledge that I am used to reading about or thinking of when I think about knowledge. Mm -hmm. Um, So how is this knowledge, uh, genocide knowledge generated in societies? Uh, Maybe we Mm -hmm. can talk about how these knowledge is generated in Armenian society and in Turkish society as well.
1: Yeah, well, I referred to it a moment ago when I gave an overview of the structure of the book. It's like all knowledge. There are those millions, millions of day-to-day conversations, interactions in which we silence reality. There are taboos, things we don't talk about. And the silencing happens on both sides of the divide, and it happens after most every genocide. It's the victims and the perpetrators who do not have an easy time talking about the horrific past. <clears throat> and sometimes in communication, we deny, we reject a notion of reality, even though it may have occurred or we acknowledge what happened. There's this special role I pointed out already of knowledge entrepreneurs uh, who have privileged access to channels of communication. They are strategic actors. They typically pursue a goal with their Uh, efforts at acknowledging or at denying states, intellectuals, how the knowledge then becomes sedimented and how it becomes the property of groups, of social classes. And the knowledge of labor relations among the working classes differs from that among the capitalist classes, how it becomes the property of ethnic groups, of political and national groups. So there were quite a number of concepts involved here. Maybe we can get into those in in just a moment. But those are the, the processes.
0: Right, yes, actually that's um, my next question is about one of those um, terms and aspects that you talk about and it is about a sedimentation of knowledge which you already mentioned uh, a bit in the overview and answering my previous question. So uh, when and how sedimentation of knowledge happens uh, and maybe we can talk about again like how they are different, maybe uh, similar in uh, societies, Armenian societies, and Turkish mm. society.
1: Yeah. Yeah, sedimentation is one of those technical terms I use, and it's a term that appears in Peter Bergen, Thomas Luckman's social construction of reality. And obviously, it's a metaphor. It's a metaphor taken from geology that I apply to social life, and then Bergen and Luckman apply to social life. And let me, I don't want to read from my book, but maybe make an exception here and read a couple of, of paragraphs in response to your question. Absolutely. So in geology, sedimentation refers to a process of deposition of a solid material from a state of suspension or solution in a fluid, usually air or water. The quality of these materials, once deposited, depends on a complex set of factors, related not only to the density and viscosity of the fluid medium, but also to the translational velocity of the depositing fluid, the turbulence resulting from this motion and the roughness of the beds over which it moves. These processes also are related to various mechanical properties of the solid materials propelled, to the duration of sediment transport, and to other little understood factors. So, one might ask, what in the world does this have to do with social and cultural life, but I'll try to explain this in the subsequent paragraph. Mm -hmm. Translated into the sphere of cultural life, we may think of the density and viscosity of the medium as the shape of network structures in which thoughts and articulations circulate, varying, for example, between diaspora and homeland, Turbulences are the rapidity of social change with which cultural expressions take place. And I discuss in the book, The Breakup of the Soviet Union, the effect this had on the affirmation of knowledge about the Armenian genocide, the emergence of a human rights hegemony. We may liken the features of the material propelled to a variable form of expression, for example, the spoken word, written text, or ritual performance. The duration of sediment transport is comparable to a historic time, 106 years, in the case of the Armenian genocide now, and contributing gravitation is analogous to the power and force expressed in conflictual processes, for example, in the legal and political fields. Importantly, that which is sedimented may be solid, but it is still up for future mutations, in geological sedimentation <clears throat> from peat to coal and with enough pressure in time to diamonds, I leave it to the reader to think of the cultural equivalence of these physical materials for the formation of knowledge repertoires regarding the Armenian genocide. So again, sedimentation is simply that which floats in space, our day-to-day communication, our interactions, our chats, our serious conversations and how all of this becomes solid, becomes knowledge, becomes knowledge repertoire. That becomes uh, the matter, of course, understanding of social collectivities like Armenians, like Turks, like Germans, like et cetera.
0: Right. Uh, well, another very interesting topic that you discuss uh, in part three of uh, your book is about the rituals that affirm the knowledge of genocide. Uh, so my uh, next question would be about um, this. Like, can you explain uh, what form these rituals take place? You mentioned a little bit again in the overview, but maybe we can go a bit into details. Uh, again, in both of the societies, how this happens.
1: Yeah, rituals. Rituals are an important mechanism in social life. We know them, the everyday rituals, small ones of shaking hands. There are um, rituals in religious life, in churches. There are rituals in political life. Um, By ritual, the... Sociological thinking about rituals roots in the work of Emil Durkheim, the classical sociological thinker, who wrote a famous book about the elementary forms of religious life. And for Durkheim, religious uh, rituals are situations where collectivities, groups of people are physically co present, uh, where there are boundaries around them. Some people are included, others are excluded where people focus on the same object or the same activity, where there is a sense of emotionality, where we are aware of each other's emotions, and this creates, in Durkheim's term, a sense of collective effervescence. We know this. If we sat alone in a soccer stadium or football stadium or baseball stadium, it would be a different experience from sitting in the midst of 10,000 people who cheer and, and share emotions. That's right. And the outcome then is a sense of community, an affirmation of of shared beliefs, and maybe a sanctification of something as sacred. Knowledge, an idea, knowledge about the genocide, for example. Sacred evil is a term that sociologists have used. And we find these rituals in Armenian life, and we all know them. We know April 24th, I observed rituals in the local locally in our St. Sahak Church in St. Paul. I ob- participated in them in ACOM, the Armenian Cultural Organization of Minnesota. Uh, but I also had the opportunity to uh, observe and experience them in Yerevan um, in 2016 on the occasion of the 101st anniversary of the genocide when we were taken up by bus to, uh, to the memorial on Tsitsernakaberd. Kabert. And we saw the procession of people hiking up the hill to put down flowers around the eternal flame in the sanctuary and how we gathered behind the president and the cabinet and the luminaries together with international diplomats, survivors of other genocides. And then there were military honors, there were religious and patriotic songs. And then eventually we descended into the memorial and put down our Flowers and clearly all the criteria of rituals that Emil Durkheim wrote about were reflected there. There was another ritual, a Global Forum Against Crime and Genocide. It had more the character of a conference, but it also had ritual ceremonies or, or, or elements where survivors of other genocides from Rwanda, from Cambodia, for example, spoke where well, there developed a sense of solidarity and common suffering uh, that was very moving for me to experience. I have the opp- had the opportunity to give a small talk there as a, as a scholar. And then there was an Aurora Prize ceremony, uh, a very moving experience, which I s- describe in some detail uh, in this book. Uh, so those are famous Armenian examples. But of course, the Turks also have... Rituals and I describe, based on the work of a uh, young Turkish uh, scholar, the May 29th a commemoration of 1453, the conquest of Constantinople by Mehmed II, also called Fatih. This is something that President Erdogan and his AKP uh, celebrated and brought into motion. It's a glorification of the Ottoman Empire without any reservation, without any acknowledgement of cruelties committed by that empire, but also April 24 rituals conducted by opposition uh, groups within Turkey, courageous young Turkish people who commemorate the Armenian genocide on that particular date, often in significant places like near the hall where the Uh, Armenian intellectuals were held after they were captured on April 24, 1915, or near the train station from which the deportations from Constantinople were undertaken.
0: That's right, Uh, well, uh, another, since we uh, talked about rituals also in Turkish society, Uh, One of the important aspects that you discuss um, in this part of your book, um, in actually one of the chapters you specifically talk about it, is uh, denial. And so my question is, what is the role of denial in this process of generation, of formation, of knowledge? Um, How productive or counterproductive can denial be?
1: Mm. Yeah, I distinguish between different types of denial in the book, uh, building on the work of Stanley Cohen here. Uh, There's factual denial, where we simply say something didn't happen. And we we find factual denial in Turkey. We know about the renaming of places, of streets, uh, to wipe out the memory that Armenians played a role, the destruction of cultural artifacts or the appropriation of cultural artifacts. It's a kind of factual renaming. Armenians were never here. They didn't play a role in the life of this, of this land. Then there is interpretive denial. Uh, and that's the most prominent form of denial in Turkey today. Uh, yes, many people suffered. Yes, many Armenians lost their lives. But it was just part of World War I. Many Turks also lost their lives, which indeed they did. Uh, So it's a reinterpretation of reality. The numbers are turned upside down, the numbers of of people victimized. uh, All of this is part of interpretive denial. And then there's implicatory denial. Uh, Yes, it happened. Yes, it was genocide, but we couldn't be held responsible for it. Uh, Is it productive or counterproductive? It is experienced, and this is why states... Deny as productive, especially by states where the violence violates the foundation myth of the state. Of course, the genocide was committed by the Ottoman Empire, but the cruelties extended into the Liberation War. Um, And the Ottoman, many Ottoman administrators who were deeply implicated in the Armenian genocide became part of Kemal Mustafa's government. Uh, and Ataturk's program, of course, one of what was one of national uh, or ethnic nationalism, which didn't have place right. for. I mean, so we know this from other countries too, which have a very hard time with the cruelties of their foundation. The United States is, is another example with its history vis-a-vis uh, Native Americans. Uh, it's hard to incorporate that into a glorious foundation myth. That's the productive side, if you want, from the perspective of those who deny. But clearly, there are counterproductive consequences. Uh, this denial is expensive. Uh, it's exhausting. The Turkish state invests enormous resources into denying in its uh, among its diplomats in foreign relations. It cuts off economic ties to other countries. It's economically expensive. It is delegitimizing to the Turkish Republic, uh, Republic. It holds the risk of future aggression. We cannot imagine that the Turkish role in the recent war on around Nagorno-Karabakh would have been possible if Turkey had lived up to the memory of the Armenian genocide. Right. Uh, so many counterproductive consequences. Denialism can be very expensive, very problematic. And I see, of course, as someone who grew up in Germany, a country that eventually lived up to the memory of the Holocaust, that it is necessary to do so eventually and that it hasn't done harm to Germany and it's standing in the international community quite the opposite. I cannot imagine how Germany would be a respected member of the international community today if it did not live up to the memory of the Holocaust. And I would expect something similar for Turkey, but it has not happened thus far. That's it has right. happened. It has. I should. I should always add this: we should never globalize. We should never uh, assume a people to be totally unified behind one belief. There are so many courageous Turkish intellectuals who live in the diaspora in France, in the United States, and other countries, who do profound work on the Armenian genocide, and there are oppositional groups in Turkey who, despite all the risks and resistance by the government, speak up uh, and often pay a very high, high price for that.
0: They do, yes. Um, well, uh, since we talked about... Uh, many uh, of the concepts and the topics discussed in the book we um, however missed to reflect on one very important part of it and which is the sources that you used to compile this uh, very important volume so can you please share with us that story Uh, what sources you used where did you go for the sources etc
1: Yes, this was a fantastic process, and I involved many students at the University of Minnesota, undergraduate and graduate students, in a number of small data collection efforts that all contributed to this book, so I one of those students now lives in Armenia for example Uh, others continue to work on related topics so uh, so the data collection was uh, an important part of the of the of the entire project that resulted in this book
0: I can imagine
1: (laughs) so uh, I conducted interviews with uh, Armenians common Armenians and intellectuals Um, I Conducted interviews uh, with people who were involved in lawsuits lawsuits over knowledge, knowledge especially uh, as it is being taught in education systems. I interviewed members of the French Senate and the Constitutional Council, the French equivalent to the U.S. Supreme Court, even though it's organized quite differently. So interviews were an important method. But I also analyzed documents. Uh, Really exciting was our work in the historical archives um, in here in Minnesota, the Minnesota History Archives, which contain, among other important documents, the diaries of a Carmelite Christy, who was a missionary and school administrator in Tarsus, near Adana on the Mediterranean coast, and who wrote down everything she observed and everything that people would travel through told her about the events of 1915. Uh, We analyzed French legislative records, the voting patterns, and the statements different representatives and senators made when two pieces of legislation pertaining to the Armenian genocide were before the legislative assemblies. We analyzed federal court records, particularly the federal court in Boston, where Uh, A trial over teaching guidelines for Massachusetts schools was carried out. We uh, did a content analysis of a large sample of newspaper reports in American and French newspapers that spoke to the Armenian Genocide on the day of commemoration, but also to the legal and legislative struggles over the memory of the Genocide. And then I engaged in ethnographic observation. I participated in and attended commemorative rituals. I spoke about this in Yerevan, in Paris, in St. Paul, Minnesota. Uh, And uh, our local Armenian cultural organization of Minnesota has a wonderful series of events (coughs) entitled How it was growing up in um, Armenian in XYZ. So how was it growing up Armenian in St. Paul? How was it growing up Armenian in um, in Tehran? How was it
0: sounds growing like up a very in, interesting. In Beirut, so
1: so was it, or or in Syria, uh, wonderful. I learned so much from those personal accounts, and I took diligent notes when people spoke about their experiences. So, mm-hmm. interviews, analysis of documents, and ethnographic observation are the methods that I applied in writing this book.
0: Wow, that's. Uh really fascinating um well then um my next question is actually about the audience so uh wh- who is the targeted audience uh for this publication and what do you expect them to take away from this book
1: yeah this is a difficult question it's something i struggled with when writing the book uh, clearly there are sections in this book that speak to social scientists Uh, Especially social scientists who work on knowledge, the way I understand it, everyday knowledge, culture, mass violence, genocide, the Middle East, Turkey, Armenian history, uh, clearly uh, directed um, at scholars. But there are also sections, and I hope you agree, having read the book, that should be more broadly accessible, that are descriptive descriptions of rituals, descriptions of, um, from uh, Carmelite Christie's diaries. Mm And so I hope that people beyond scholarly experts will read at least parts of this book. And my dream would be that they would develop an understanding in the knowledge held by the other side. And this doesn't mean agreement. This doesn't mean justification of that knowledge. But just to understand when we encounter as Armenians a Turk today who completely disagrees with our basic assumptions about the Armenian genocide, that we understand why he so totally disagrees, that we understand his knowledge that he holds. And maybe based on that understanding, we we will be able to engage in communication with that person. And maybe that communication will be one step toward mutual understanding and one step toward a more peaceful coexistence between peoples. I also hope, of course, that this kind of book will strengthen those who are in opposition to the dominant Turkish narrative today and um, because they do do need this kind of support.
0: Absolutely, um, that's right. Well, wow, Th- this you have done a tremendous job and uh, I really enjoyed reading your book. And I hope that um, followers of this podcast are going to uh, do the same because there is a lot to learn about uh, this very uh, different approach to uh, Armenian genocide and genocide knowledge in general. Uh, Thank you for this uh, fantastic work and thank you for joining uh, me uh, today to share your work with the Society of Armenian Studies podcast series.
1: Well, Asya, I thank you very much. You asked really wonderful, meaningful questions. And I thank you for conducting this interview. And of course, to the Society for Armenian Studies for providing this opportunity. I'm very, very grateful. And uh, thank you.